I am a deceiver and a liar. There's part of my life that is so repulsive and dark that I have been warring against it for all of my adult life. For extended periods of time, I would enjoy victory and rejoice in freedom. Then, from time to time, the dirt that I thought was gone would resurface, and I would find myself thinking thoughts and experiencing desires that were contrary to everything I believe and teach. The congregation rose as one. For a long minute, they stood applauding, sniffling. Interim Senior Pastor Ross Parsley bounded to the podium. Listen, we all feel worse than we did a week ago, but we were worse off a week ago. Today, we all are more obedient, more repentant, more transparent than we've been in a long time. It's all over the newspapers. It's all over the news. The fall of Ted Haggard. We're going to tackle this issue today on Sinners and Saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge. We do thank you for joining us on Sinners and Saints, Adam Kalustian and John Sautel and Moses Jambazian, pastors of United Reformed Congregations in Pasadena, Walnut, and Ontario, California. We're addressing probably one of the most devastating things to the face of Christianity in the United States that we've seen in quite a while. That's the fall of Ted Haggard. And the first question that we want to answer is, why are we even talking about this today? Well, you know, that's a very good question. I think we ought to be uh, very candid about this up front. Um, I know I speak for my part, and I'm sure yours as well, that this is not something that we delight in. Uh, You can even tell by uh, Pastor Adam's introduction here and his opening remarks, there's no jumping up and down when we talk about this. Uh, There's no sense of zeal or excitement or... Uh, fascination with the fact that a high-profile pastor falls. I, I think one of the things that we really ought to be thinking about when we, we see this here is we're not capitalizing on somebody's sin. We realize that this is a devastating problem. It devastated himself, it devastates his wife, his children, his family, the people who had been listening to him for years and years as uh, their pastor. This is uh, a difficult blow to the church He represented a political cause, which was uh, about opposing same-sex marriages, and so it shows uh, the evangelicals at root are just nothing but uh, power-grubbing hypocrites. There are so many different angles on this. This is intertwined with so many different issues. Uh, It would be completely unfair to characterize this as an ad hominem attack against um, just another evangelical. This is something that ought to provoke deep thought uh, on behalf of Christians Uh, about the power and the nature of sin and how it can be uh, that people who are professing Christians for nearly their entire lives can fall in such a scandalous and open and devastating way. I believe this definitely makes us to be humbled before God when we consider that no one is immune to sin and there is no one who will escape judgment. 
And it is a good warning for us to look at ourselves as ministers, but for all believers to consider seriously whether or not we believe that God is speaking in the law of what is true holiness and whether or not the warnings given to us that we must consider our fallen estate and our inability before him. Unfortunately, for many people, it has been a time of great rejoicing. They can see the hypocrisy of Christianity in particular, and now they can see that you know, no one is worthy of being trusted, so they can go on their own way. But we don't believe that that's the right response or approach. The right thing to do is for us to humble ourselves before God and acknowledge our own sinfulness and call upon God through his mercy by sending the Spirit to continue to sanctify us in truth through the means of grace that we may actually be lights, that we may actually be the city on the hill, so that we may bear true testimony of God's saving grace in our lives. So we are going to speak to this issue directly to Christians and to professing Christians, uh, whatever their background might be. We're going to address specifically uh, evangelical Christians, the, the Christian right, those who would identify with the life and ministry and purpose of, of Haggard and his cohorts. We are going to address specifically those Christians of the confessional Reformed persuasion to apply the lessons and to understand what has happened in a biblical light. We are going to specifically also address those unbelievers out in the culture who are using this event as a time of a triumph, a marker of a, the great hypocrisy of Christianity exposed, and uh, call them to understand what has happened in light of the Scripture. So we, we are going to address different groups of people at different places along the way and uh, talk about some of the complex issues that this event forces us to consider. Well, personally, I'd like to take this in the direction of what does this say to individual Christians before we get into the cult of evangelicalism? I certainly believe this has a great deal of lessons for us in it for uh, church life. But I can honestly say the first thing I thought of when I heard about this news uh, was how do we account for this? How do we account for the fact that somebody who is a lifelong professing Christian falls in such a public and, and such a scandalous and repulsive way? And it got me to thinking about a number of things, but I think the things that I was thinking about are crystallized uh, in a remark that he made to his own son. This, apparently this was written in a book a few years before this, public, uh, this uh, scandal was publicized. Uh, he said to his son, who was headed off to college, Major leaders have lost their positions of influence because of what they did alone in a room. Please don't ever fall into the trap of believing that you can do something in secret even when you are far away from home. This is a lie. It will always come back to haunt you. I think one of the things that we need to think about when we consider the example of his own fall is how do people end up doing things like this? And he puts his finger uh, on the pulse of a very important issue, and that is that if you are not uh, daily crucifying sin, if you are not daily battling your own sins, if you're not daily hating them and putting them off and on your self-watch here and then uh, coming to Christ and his cross and, and seeking forgiveness, there is a, a hardness that begins to develop in the heart, which we see from a number of examples in Scripture of people who the Bible even calls godly and devout men 
how they fell from pow- from positions of power, prestige, and and even public respect uh, down into the gutters of life. And one of them was simply because they did not uh, carefully watch their own life and fight against temptation and sin and evil. And one important lesson here is you cannot nurse evil in your heart and expect that in the long haul, it's not going to come around and bite you. Now, obviously, the individual sin of this man is very important. That's what brings us to this topic. But we really need to consider the overall culture, the whole mentality that has brought us to this point where we have someone who is considered an evangelical leader for the world to see and one who has sought power and sought influence and how Christians have been so excited by the fact that one of ours gets to speak to the positions of power, gets to have a direct line to the White House, and how excited that would make us. We are children of the King of Kings, saved by grace. That is where our joy should be, and yet we're never content with that. We want to have more grandiose buildings. We want to have tens of thousands gathered together, and then we can brag that look at how many people believe what we believe and listen to our people. That's nonsense. We are Christians. We should be excited by the fact that God in love has predestined us to salvation, to be conformed to the image of Christ, and instead we despise that and we only go after power and we forgive people who have never repented just because they seem to be on the track to having great influence over the rest of society. True godliness is not visible. True godliness is not going to be looked upon by thousands upon thousands and appreciated. True godliness is the work of repentance, self-control. Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, If indeed you have heard from Christ and have been taught by him, as the truth is in him, put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Without the daily rigorous work of crucifying the old man, putting him to death, fighting your temptations, resisting the old habits which cling to you, then you are setting yourself up for a miserable fall. Many Christians understand godliness and piety in terms of shouting as loud as they can the, the, the latest and greatest slogan, joining in some great cause. Godliness is humbly and quietly living your life, minding your own business, and repenting and fighting your sins. You know, uh, this is summarized very well in our own Reformed Confessions in something that I uh, read years ago, and it, stuck, it stood out in my thinking that continues to be a statement that I return to over and over again and mull over, and I think it's a very uh, helpful summary of this godliness that Pastor Adam's been talking about, the Canons of Dort, uh, Article 5, or Section 5, Chapter 5, Article 2, explains the life of the Christian, one of the best ways I think I've ever read anywhere, when it talks about how to deal with our sins. It says that, hence spring forth daily sins of infirmity and blemishes cleaving even to the best work of the saints. So these are to them a perpetual reason to humiliate themselves before God and to flee for refuge to Christ crucified. You see, 
our sins, our, even our sinful temptations, lusts, and desires, even if they're things that we haven't acted out on, are no reason for us to congratulate ourselves about because we didn't act out on them. The confession is telling us, I think echoing the sentiments of Scripture and uh, you know the passage here that Pastor Adam has read from Ephesians 4 and other passages like it, is that when we see those kinds of things operating within our hearts and our minds, what we ought to be doing is immediately fleeing to Christ as a refuge. That is the remedy for this problem. This is uh, one of the exercises that God calls true Christians to, is to be constantly fleeing to Christ as a refuge and then in turn mortifying our sins. If we don't, if we don't make that the daily practice of our lives, this is precisely the kind of evil that's going to manifest, it, manifest itself in uh, the actions that, that we indulge in. Yeah, Christians get complacent in their rush to revel and joy in the glorious redemption that they have in Christ. They will forget, for a number of reasons, that they actually are facing temptation every day. And they will overestimate their own holiness, and they will drop their guard, and then what happens? Sin creeps in the door, Satan prowls like a roaring lion seeking to destroy anybody that he can, and without the diligent and regular, careful, cutting understanding of the law of God and applying it to your own life and to your heart, you are susceptible to the kinds of falls that we see, the kind of fall that we see here with this Ted Haggard. And it is a this event in the first place is a sobering reminder to Christians that we are all capable of falling into sin and we had better watch it for the, the, the sake of God's glory expressed in our lives and for the sake of the, the reputation of Christ in the church and to the unbelieving world. This is not a time to revel in somebody's fall. This is a time to be warned and and a reminder to be watchful of our own hearts and minds that we might not fall as Haggard did. Now, one of the problems here that is in the air, let's say, of cultural Christianity today, evangelical Christianity, are the kinds of things which are conducive uh, to fostering the attitudes, desires, uh, and temptations which lead to these very scandalous Sins. I think we ought to move now from the individual warning, which is a terrible, sobering warning to us all, to consider, well, what kinds of things are in being institutionalized in the church which promote this mentality? And, and I would argue that Haggard himself was fostering a climate in which this kind of thing can happen. Here he's this, and, and the, one of the newspaper articles I was reading here was celebrating this fact that here was this brash, debonair, charismatic, fiery young preacher who built this 14,000-member church from his basement. You see, this is the kind of mentality that is out there in evangelicalism, that a guy with the right amount of charisma, the right amount of talent, the right amount, uh, amount of ability to, to stand up and, and to be chatty and gabby and cool in front of people, he can, with the right kind of opportunity, uh, build this wonderfully successful business of a church. Yeah, and see, there's your problem right there. You're looking at it in terms of worldly ways. You're looking at it in terms of how can we justify 
that we are successful in the eyes of others rather than in the eyes of Christ. So instead of preaching the gospel faithfully for the glory of God, instead of calling sinners to repentance, you're not happy unless it's a thousand people or more listening to you preaching. You're not happy until you're able to influence local elections. That's right. Think about not only the the church growth model that undoubtedly is instituted to build this massive number of people in this organization he calls a church. But think about his association with the National Association of Evangelicals, the leader of this group. What defines that group? What keeps that group going? It's the lust for power and influence. We are going to be able to raise a group up of citizens in this nation who cannot be ignored by the world. We are going to say that we are the ones who are going to define, according to God's word, what righteousness is, and we are going to exercise that power to see that godliness promoted in the culture. And you see what happens. What gets neglected in the zeal, supposedly, for the the power of Christ to be instituted? Well, it's the real piety, which is personal holiness and humility. Uh, Somebody that confirms this, uh, who ought to be considered an authority on this subject, is Charles Coulson. He has had... Of course, uh, most of you would probably know a tremendously scandalous fall back in the Nixon uh, years. The Nixon administration has been spending the rest of his life after being converted uh, in some measure trying to go back and right some of the wrongs. But he has his finger on one of the uh, the most critical issues in evangelicalism today. I was just reading this in, in a in a in a magazine recently where he says this about evangelicals. He says, they simply like to be around power. There is a fascination with power among evangelicals, among the people who are of the megachurch crowd, and it seems to me that one of the reasons why people are with this kind of uh, uh, these churches is because they are attracted to brand name status. They are attracted to the power which is symbolized in these massive buildings with all of their uh, coffee shops and bowling alleys and and movie theaters and all that they have uh, wrapped up into one big bundle of Jesus plus uh, all the cultural fun you can ever like. We are, as, a, as an evangelical Christian culture, so-called, attracted to this kind of power, and it's very dangerous, and it fosters and nurses the very mentalities and attitudes and desires which lead to these gross, scandalous public sins. We are going to build up the troops. We are going to rally them together and march on Washington to declare that we, the Holy Ones, are going to get everybody else figured out, or we're going to help everybody else figure out what they need to be doing and conform to our actions and attitudes. And it's a lust for power that drives a lot of this and neglecting personal piety. Listen, I'll tell you this over and over again. We did a series a couple weeks back. You've heard it on the website about politics and how many Christians, you know, get consumed with the political application of their Christian faith and at the same time neglect some basic areas of piety in their life. What does that tell you? It tells you that their view of piety is not one of humble obedience and self-control and the fruit of the Spirit. It's one of a lust for power and pride. And unfortunately, this means that instead of doing church in a way that God would command, where the church exists as the body of Christ on earth, doing the will of the Father, doing all things for the glory of the kingdom, instead it becomes entirely subordinate to a greater political cause. And so 
we're not going to ultimately sacrifice Haggard. This is my guess, is that ultimately, like Jimmy Swaggart, ultimately like Tilton and all these other guys, we're going to wind up bringing him back in because he had so much influence and power. We can't just jettison that. Well, besides that, he has it. Yeah, whatever it he happens He has to, it. Yeah, he can build up a congregation from his basement to 14,000 and influence the White House. Therefore, we're not going to jettison that for the sake of oh, the no. glory of God. He will be and, resuscitated. Yeah, so this is the problem is that we are so consumed by our image and by the, the lust for power. And so, again, so much of the criticism that's taken place now is not how horrible that something like this is systemic that we can promote this type of behavior, but instead it's, oh, what a tragedy it is to our influence, and it will affect whether or not we can pass more of these marriage amendments in the Constitution. Well, let me ask you this, guys, because I see we're saying clearly that the agenda of the majority of the evangelical church, the evangelical cult, as John called it, the agenda of the evangelical cult is to wield political influence and power. It's to grow. It's to be visibly powerful and to be seen as influential, which leads me to to, to a question that sort of lies behind this dynamic. What really is the what really defines the evangelical church? Well, I'll I mean, this you. is what what are they all about? Gross commercialism. One of the things that stood out to me is I was reading through a whole series of articles on this, and it was just the strangest juxtaposition within the midst of this article. They're talking about a a sobbing pastor and a devastated congregation, and the next scene flashes to hordes of Sunday school children racing down the hallways of the church to the church coffee shop where they're going to get... Uh, goopy cinnamon rolls and chocolate chip muffins. I'm sitting here thinking to myself, how in the world can the Church of Jesus Christ be turned into a glorified shopping mall where you can get Jesus and goopy cinnamon rolls? And it seems to me that's just exactly uh, the problem. It's symptomatic of the whole problem of evangelicalism is it's commercial, gross commercializing of Christianity for the sake of profits. Yeah, the church has prostituted itself to become a, a vehicle of political power. It's prostituted itself to be a reflection of the culture. It's prostituted itself to become a, a version of entertainment light that can appease you know certain kinds of Americans and of a socio-political class. The church has completely, the evangelical cult has completely forfeited its right to be called the Christian church. Moses, maybe you can help me understand this a little bit, but you think about the evangelical cult, right? I mean, do we even believe that they're preaching the gospel? We've addressed this a number of times, and we would say that unless you are preaching the gospel as we have summarized in the three forms, or you can see in the Westminster Confession, then no, you're not. And it is this cheapening that has been the problem. This idea that, no, no, as long as somebody says they love Jesus, we should incorporate them into the church— we would say, no, the church historically has understood that a word can be twisted. It can be completely emptied of its original meaning and made to say anything. So, no, it has to be clearly understood and defined. It has to be rightly preached. And whatever is confessed and preached has to be checked against Scripture to see that it's true. But, you know, in Scripture, you, you, you raise so many issues there that, that have to be broken down a little bit here. Scripture, Christ, all of these things— I'm thinking about those, and I'm thinking that these are nowhere on the radar screen. They are on the periphery. 
just anecdotal evidence that confirms this. The world around us knows this, too. That's what's so damning about this. I can remember watching an episode of King of the Hill not that long ago. Uh, you know, of course, the fount of a redneck hick wisdom. Those are your people, They're John. my people. I understand them very well. And um, the thing of it is here is they have an episode where Hank and his family had been t- attending very contently for years and years uh, the church around the corner. And uh, they get in a riff with the pastor over something trivial or whatever, and they decide to go down uh, to the hip new mega church in town. And of course, it has the shopping malls, the coffee shops, and everything. But one of the really humorous parts of this episode was there was this guy who's driving around throughout the stadium parking lot out there at the church uh, on a little golf cart, and he's you know directing people to the various venues and cafes and places on the church complex. And then he calls them at like two o'clock in the morning as a part of a phone survey and asks them if they were satisfied, slightly satisfied, or highly satisfied. And so the first time Hank answers the phone, and he's like whatever okay he answers this guy calls him every single week after that to find out asking the very same questions acting like he's never talked to him before and of course they want to know because he's the market niche that they're researching part of the visitors here so they can hone their image the culture is looking at the evangelical cult out there and is saying it's nothing more than madison avenue and we're saying when we look at the evangelical cult as we've told you before they have divorced themselves from the historic Protestant church on theological grounds, which of course affects their whole approach to the Christian life and the ministry of their local congregations. The reason why, one of the reasons why we see the prominent member of the evangelical cult falling into this grave, atrocious sin is because the evangelical church has prostituted the gospel. They don't have the gospel. They're not preaching the gospel that was rediscovered by the reformers. They're not preaching the gospel that Jesus taught, that the apostles taught, that was built on the foundation of the prophets. They have separated themselves theologically from those truths, and certainly then they are not uh, preaching the truth and the power of Christ from their pulpits. And it's no wonder that these scandals then appear to shame the name of Christ in the name of Christ. Yeah, the, the the major message that seems to be coming out of evangelicalism and the major thrust, if you will, of the whole evangelical church marketing scheme is to figure out how to deliver the world's goods to you, whether that's through self-help seminars, whether that's through helping putting your relationships together. It's all about man and him improved and very little about Jesus, only except for when Jesus provides us with a good model uh, for how to live successfully and get along with your neighbors and influence friends and co-workers. The whole thing is about marketing. We've seen this. We've talked about it on other shows. We looked at it with the Calvary Chapels, and we even saw Chuck Smith Sr., Papa Chuck, who you know, supposedly is a faithful gospel preacher. When his son is preaching heretical doctrines, his response is, well, he's reaching a different market. And that's really what it comes down to. It's all about can you market yourself. The main point that we're making about, or one of the things that we can learn from this fall of Haggard is, again, that evangelicalism is bankrupt. You are hearing this, always accusing us of being radical and crazy. We've talked about the marks of a true church, the pure preaching of the glorious gospel of Christ, the proper administration of the sacraments, the right exercise of church discipline, 
when those things are instituted, when the scripture is actually followed, it doesn't end up with fireworks, bells and whistles, everybody pointing to the Christians and saying, oh, how wonderful they are. No, it is quiet, but that is where the true godly power is. When you prostitute that out to marketing, to uh, political power, to trying to gain influence, popularity, trying to look a certain way, speak a certain way, attract a certain amount of people, then there's nothing Christian about it. And that's a strong lesson that we've got to learn from this. Stop compromising and calling everything Christian just because the label Christ is on it. You have to come back to the truth, to the foundation, to the gospel of Christ. Now, I want to take this another direction. Obviously, uh, an horrific incident like this makes us ask the question about pastors, even in true churches in the ministry. You know, what do we think about the idea that when a minister falls in this grave, you know, can a minister be restored, say, to the pastoral office? What do we think about this this poor guy's wife? You know, I mean, is she bound now to uh, forgive him? She makes a big thing out in this L.A. Times article. She's quoted, those of you, it says that one of the pastors read aloud a short letter from Gail Haggard, the wife. She said her heart was broken, but she promised to stand by her husband. Quote, for those of you who have been concerned that my marriage was so perfect, I could not possibly relate to the women who are facing great difficulties, know that this will never again be the case. My test has begun. Watch me. I will try to prove myself faithful. She obviously is assuming that she has an obligation to remain with Haggard. You know, what do we think about pastors staying in ministry, wives staying married to husbands who commit these kind of acts? Well, first of, of all, let's, let's, let's address the wife. I mean, it's very tragic for her, for her family. It, no doubt it's, it's devastating her offhand remarks there about how well now people will actually understand that I don't have the perfect marriage and all of this and I can't actually relate to you echoes something that you would only be able to understand and know if you were actually a pastor's wife. Very often pastor's wives feel like sometimes they're isolated from everybody in the congregation because people treat them as if they're so much different. They they must be have everything perfect in their lives because after all they're married to the paragon of virtue who is the pastor. And so they deal with a lot of issues that are not common to how a lot of other women are treated in the church. And one thing that ought to be learned from this is that uh, pastors and pastors' wives relate like everybody else does. They have problems, not to this extent, obviously, but they're, they have problems in their lives. They're normal people, and they should be treated as if they're just normal members of the congregation. But, you know, here with her in, in her struggle, she's saying she's standing by her man and all this stuff. Uh, we should make the point that it is fair to say she doesn't have to stand by him. Uh, there's no obligation in cases of sexual immorality for the wife to stay with the husband. And this is no different than adultery. It is worse than adultery. It, it is different than adultery in the sense that he didn't have sex with another woman. He had sex with another man. Jesus' statements here about the exception uh, for divorce in, in the case of sexual immorality certainly applies in this instance. She can rightfully, biblically, Christianly leave this guy and, and go on and live her life as if the guy is dead to her in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I shudder to think. I mean, her comment is very interesting. My test has begun. Watch me. I will try to prove myself faithful. And I wonder why somebody would say that. I mean, she has been convinced that if her husband forsakes her in the most grotesque way possible that she that that's really a, a spiritual trial now the temptation for her as she would see it would be to divorce him that's not a temptation that's perfectly within her rights and i just think about the the pressure that the evangelical cult would put upon her the members of that congregation 
where the guy actually ends up being the righteous one that he's his reputation should be defended, not hers. She's the one that has to suffer through all the consequences of this. And that's absolutely disgusting to us. She should be defended. And if she wants to leave him, she should be supported in that endeavor. But then you also bring up within this um, the issue of restoration to the ministry. And I don't know, maybe our answer may be different on this around this table here, but I, I would speak very emphatically against him ever being restored. I think it's it's fully biblical if the man is thoroughly repentant and ends up professing a true gospel that he be restored to the full fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ. But that is far different than being restored to the ministry, the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ as an ordained minister of the word. And and I would argue that first of all, and maybe we could flesh this out some more if we're all in agreement on this, that there is something uh, gross. There is something very different about this sin of sexual immorality uh, when it comes to ministers that they cannot continue on in that office. And I would argue, first of all, from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul says that uh, we are to flee from sexual immorality, 618, flee from sexual ev- immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This is a categorically different kind of a sin, which has tremendous ramifications and effects on the body and soul of the individual who is involved. It destroys his credibility. It does something which cannot be repaired, in a sense, in this life. And I don't think that, in this case, a minister can be restored back to the pulpit to administer the means of uh, the preaching of the word and minister the sacraments and still be looked upon as a credible faithful minister of the Word of God. Keep in mind what we're saying here. We are not saying that this person can never be restored to grace. He can never, ever be in communion with Christ and fellowship with the church. That's not what's being said. We are, however, saying that once you are in office as a minister of the Word, you are having to take a conscious vow before God and men, and who you are is very important because you are affecting the office not only for yourself but for all other Christian ministers in the world. So we believe that something like this has happened, such a horrible fall has taken place, that part of your service to your own oath is to now withdraw from office and not seek to be restored just because you think that you have this great gift or because you've done so much in the past. Unfortunately, Haggard has thrown it all away. And we're saying that it is good and right for him now to step down and to leave that office and to go on and pursue other avenues of generating income to support himself and whatever family obligations he has. And the reason why we address this is because we know that this is probably going to happen based upon other high-profile cases of ministers publicly falling into scandalous sin. One of the things that happens here is the evangelical community of ministers rallies around him because of apparent genuine uh, repentance and sorrow for his sin, and they're almost lifted up to a rock star status because now they're so transparent, they're so open, they can really talk about the issues in a way they couldn't have before because they've experienced the infidelity, its consequences, and its devastation. And so now they are more credible than the rest of anybody else out there because they went through it and they're living proof of the fact that God is forgiving and you can be restored after sin. But that's just not the case. The Bible's requirements for the ministry are far too high to be trivialized in this kind of a way. Think about the qualifications for minister of the word that Paul lays out in 1 Timothy 3. It's a faithful saying, if man desires a position of a bishop, he desires a good work. 
A bishop must be blameless. And then the end of that passage, verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are on the outside. Now, even if a man who falls into this kind of scandalous public sin repents and is restored to the Church of Jesus Christ, he will always be associated uh, with those on the outside with this scandalous sin, and therefore he does not meet the requirements of office. And, and I can see somebody saying, well, yeah, a man shouldn't himself promote himself to try and get it. He should humbly do it. But if other people want to restore him to the office, fine. We're saying, no, these standards are objective. You have to consider whether or not his reputation is ruined for the sake of that office. You know, one of the saddest things to me about this particular instance is that in the course of his confession, such as it is before the congregation after he's caught, there is given to him a standing ovation. A standing ovation? It's the whole martyr complex. Like, the guy should be glorified because he comes before people and confesses his sin. Now, I think it's honorable if this is a true confession or if over the course of time he shows repentance and belief in the true gospel, which I don't even know if he's aware of, then fine. I mean, that is something that I could personally encourage him as a brother or a sister in the Lord who comes to a repentance that they would be encouraged and exhorted to continue on in godliness and I'm no better than you, whatever. But for him to get a standing ovation, and you can just see what's going to happen. Oh, he's going to be pushed as an example of godliness. This is absolutely unacceptable, and it's one of the reasons why everybody mocks Christianity. Because we are simply hypocrites. Well, bear in mind also that the evangelical community a few years ago was uh, gleefully um, anticipating the impeachment and removal from office of Bill Clinton because they argued because of his little sexual escapades with an intern that somehow he was so totally unfit for office. They were so ashamed and aghast at the fact that a politician was having illicit sex with somebody that he couldn't possibly rule. After all, uh, a nation is exalted by righteousness, and if the head of the nation is out you know, having uh, illicit sex, then he can't possibly exalt the nation and its righteousness cause for righteousness. And yet the very same people who sit there and were, and were anticipating, wringing their hands with great joy over the fact that Clinton was going to be impeached, the great Antichrist, will be the very same people who will stand there and argue, oh, but, you know, uh, uh, we have to forgive our brother 70 times 7 and on and on. And, yeah, we should, you know, he's sincere. He says he loves Jesus. He's trying to get things right in his life. So, obviously, we should let him uh, back into the office of ministry. Well, that's absolutely wrong. If you're not going to have this standard with respect to somebody who's an elected public official, how could you have it in the case of somebody being a minister of Jesus Christ in his church? So we faced... Initially, now, we've started to face this uh, devastating blow to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in our culture and throughout the world cultures through the fall of, of Ted Haggard. Talked about a couple of angles. We're going to go on next week to address another issue that's staring us in the face as a result of this, which is how do we think through the idea of a Christian? Can a true Christian uh, commit these kinds of acts? What about the Christian struggle with sin? Can Christians struggle with the temptation of homosexuality? Can Christians actually indulge and give in to those temptations and other kind of temptations? Are they in a different class than Christians? We're going to talk about that next time. We thank you for joining us today on Sinners and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge.